Welcome to Collective Constructs, the podcast. I'm Anna Roddy. In this episode, we sit down with Mary Statzer, curator of prints and photography at the UNM Art Museum. We talk to Mary about her career as a curator, art maker, and art historian. Our conversation is centered around the Hindsight Insight 2.0, portraits, landscapes, and abstraction from the UNM Art Museum. Hindsight Insight 2.0 is an exhibition series of the museum's permanent collection devoted to complicating existing narratives about racism, decolonization, and gender stereotypes within museum collections, while decentering curatorial authority and institutional voice. It is created and curated by museum staff and collaborators. Collective Constructs is one of those collaborators for the show on display in 2023. Over the next two years of this ongoing experimental project, museum staff will engage the university community to generate critical dialogue that resists static presentation and fixed interpretations. to be here. My name is Mary Statzer. I'm curator of prints and photographs here at UNM Art Museum. We're interested in your academic and art training because I know oh. you're you're coming from a really unique position um, where you have a background in studio art and in art history and curious how that impacts your role as a curator. Oh, okay. All right. Um, so yeah, I started as an artist, as a maker, and I thought of myself that way for a really long time. And um, maybe I've circled back to that at this point, uh, uh, thinking of curator as a maker, but that's another story. <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I'm trained as an artist. I did a, I have my BFA um, from Illinois State University um, in printmaking and drawing. And then I moved west um, to Arizona to go to Arizona State University to get my MFA in printmaking. And then uh, as soon as I graduated, um, actually before my thesis show was up, I started working at um, a fine print publisher called Segura Publishing Company. So I became a collaborative printer along the lines of Tamarind, a Tamarind studio. In fact, Joe Segura, who owned the studio, um, was a Tamarind train, is a Tamarind train printer. So um, I started doing that kind of work. Um, so immediately segued from my own artistic practice as an MFA, MFA student to um, a collaborative printer, and which uh, became a really formative experience. Um, and has, I, I think collaboration's a through line through my career. Um, I had also started a group of artist studios called Flight Zone Studios in Phoenix. And we had six artist studios there and um, exhibition space and kind of um, group making, like uh, open group making spaces in, that, in, a, in a big um, kind of warehouse building in Phoenix. So I was doing those things, but really still needed a job needed the income, needed the structure, um, and started working at Phoenix Art Museum. So a friend encouraged me to apply. Um, my only other museum experience before that was at my university art museums. Um, so as an undergraduate and as a grad student, I worked at the university art museums um, at the universities I attended. Um, so I'd never really thought about museums as a career, but a friend was like, you're going to apply for this job right now, sit down and do it. And I did. And amazingly, I got the job. And within a week of being there, um, we were installing the Phoenix Biennial at the time. I was completely hooked, completely smitten with the whole place, with the whole, in that instance, you know, a contemporary exhibition, um, that we were a lot, a lot of installation pieces were part of that show. And so I think there was this very logical leap for me in uh, the whole idea of assisting artists making their work, but in a museum space um, rather than the print studio. And that felt very natural to me, um, even though I probably wouldn't have talked about it like that at the time. But I just loved museum work kind of from the, I don't know, first days um, that I arrived. 
So I was at Phoenix Art Museum for seven years, and I was the curatorial assistant for modern and contemporary art, as well as Latin American art. And I had some amazing mentors there um, that really, you know, helped me sort of make the leap into museum work. Surprisingly, I loved things like the staff meetings at Phoenix Art Museum because our director was very uh, active in AAM, the museum um, professional organization, and was the the director of AAM for a while and would come back with all these kind of museum stories and museum stories in the news and things he was experiencing through that organization. And so for me, very nerdily, you know, it was it was exciting to um, it was like a museum studies course um, to be there. So um, that's where I really got hooked on museum work. And I was at Phoenix Art Museum, like I said, for seven years, and I I, I absolutely loved it there. I got to um, curate exhibitions. I um, did some writing. I was involved in lots of exhibitions that weren't mine to curate, but I got the most amazing diverse experience there, and it made me want to be a curator. So I started to apply for jobs, and I just wasn't I wasn't breaking through. I wasn't landing anything. And I realized that I really wanted um, an art history degree. Uh, I think if I had embarked on this part of my career maybe five years earlier, ten years earlier than I did, I might have been able to parlay a MFA into a curatorial job. But at that point, it was not happening. And for women, especially PhDs, um, were starting to be really important um, in uh, the curatorial field, at least from my perspective. So I decided to go back and I was an older student. So, um, it was kind of a big decision. Like, you know, I was ready to like Bard was a big deal at that time. And I was like, can I move to, you know, can I move to the East coast for school? I have a life. I have a family here. Um, I have, I'm, you know, it was a completely different time in my life to like do school and so that was a big consideration and I was ready to do it you know like I had the BART application like ready to go and then um the director of the Center for Creative Photography um at University of Arizona came to speak um his name is Doug Nickel and Doug was uh, Doug is an amazing speaker and had a lot to say about the medium and about that institution and at that time uh, Phoenix Art Museum and the Center for Creative Photography were uh, joining forces. And so the Center for Creative Photography has a gallery in um, the Phoenix Art Museum building. And that so that collaboration was what Doug Nickel was talking about. But a light bulb went off in my head. I'm like, you know, I come from a works on paper background. As a printmaker, um, photography was everywhere. And there was a big exchange between the photography MFA students and the printmaking MFA students. And I spent more time probably with the photo MFAs than I did with my own cohort in, in printmaking. So photography was already very present in my thinking about art and my skills as a printmaker. Um, and... So I went for it. I went I went to uh, the University of Arizona. I applied for the PhD program, which I did not have an, have an MA in art history. So, but I, I my thinking was, you know, if, if they let me in, I'm going to do this thing, right? You know, like it would really help me you know, career-wise if I have had a PhD. I did not think very carefully about like what skills I might not have acquired, you know, like it would have been helpful to have an MA to have uh, research methods, which I actually took. I took some classes at ASU um, so that my application looked credible <laughs> at uh, U of A. So I did do research methods then and stuff like that, but I had not really put it into practice. So I was in it a little over my head when I got to uh, Tucson. And also sort of switching gears to um, the history of photography. So 
it was a very interesting one to both think of myself, like make that shift of thinking of myself as a maker to an historian. Like it took me a long time to figure out what that meant to me. I, you know, imposter syndrome was ran deep, you know, and uh, so it took a long time to just sort of feel like I owned it probably halfway through my dissertation research, honestly. And that's, you know, after all your coursework, after your comps, you know, all of that, all, all defending your your proposal, your dissertation propo- proposal. So, um, yeah. And it also took me a really long time to do my PhD. And, I, you know, one might have argued that I didn't have a lot of time to do a PhD. Like I might have wanted to fast track it given my age, you know, um, being an older student. But I think I needed that time. I needed that time to, like, own it. Oh, understand it, own it, gain the skills, um, and also just tending to the rest of my life, which is something that I didn't really do. You know, my my MFA program, like I was, I was just really young. I was actually a really young student, you know, or fairly young, and um, I just didn't, I didn't have the luxury of leaving the rest of my 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 world behind. So it was interesting to, you know, my parents were aging, and and I was caring for them. Um, as they were um, dying, you know, while I was a MFA or while I was doing my PhD and writing my dissertation, um, I became a grandmother at that time, and so I like had grandkids and aging parents, you know, like bookending this experience of trying to understand myself as a scholar and not a maker. And um, I guess I'm just thinking about the trajectory of your, you know, career and how diverse it is. And I know something that Anna brought up was, you know, the the type of, um, like, fluid interactions that we've been able to have with you here mm-hmm. at the museum. Mm-hmm. Anna, would you like to expand on that? Yeah, I guess. Thanks, Marina. I think transitioning to talking about our collaboration with Hindsight Insight, something that occurred to me and something, thanks for explaining so much about your background, because it makes a lot of sense to me that you have a lot of experience hands-on working with artists and these collaborative, uh, in the, all these different collaborative ways. Like I didn't know that you started a collective of artist studios and um, yeah, I think like, I guess something that I think about is how welcomed I felt coming in and working in the space with you. And it, it had occurred to me that like your experience being an artist would change the way that you work as a curator. And I guess I have questions about, um, like, what is your relationship working with artists who are contemporary artists and working currently, and also the work of artists within the collection, the permanent collection, so people who may have passed, or um, there's such a broad collection here that spans so much time, and it's been exciting to see what some of that um encompasses by working with you on this project so yeah sorry that's a lot of parts but I guess yeah more of an observation about your ability and like welcoming um, nature in collaboration with contemporary artists and then also how it differs from working with the collection of um, of objects that aren't connected to a living artist yeah well first of all I'm just thrilled to hear you say you felt welcome like that just makes me really happy and you know it's funny I was looking at the photographs from the opening reception well it was quite an opening right it was a little bit later this time but there's a picture of the three of us together um and there's the hugest smile on my face I'm laughing you know and it just I think I just, I feel so comfortable having you all here. Like it finally feels like I got it right, you know, and it's taken, I mean, this is my, I'm, I'm I'm finishing my fifth year, starting my sixth. And so in, on some level, I feel like I finally just got it right. You know, finally just found a way to welcome you all into the museum in a way that feels generative for me generative for you I hope you know it's and so 
it was just just a, an opportunity that photograph you know for me to reflect on just what kind of, what a joy it's been you know and um it's on my face you know it was and I and I love having that sort of um dare I say you know photographic evidence which we all know is bullshit but I'm gonna say it anyway there is some truth to it even if it's not the whole truth um one of the reasons I felt like photography was the field of study for me as a curator is that there's a history of makers as curators in those fields you know going back to Beaumont Newhall and uh, John Jarkowski so uh, that's also something that made me feel very comfortable and I needed that bridge to feel like this was going to work for me. Um, so I do think that all of the previous experiences add up to something for me that I hope is, is sort of manifesting in different ways, kind of depending on the project who I'm working with, um, living artists, even the ones that aren't living anymore. Like, you know, there's, there's, there's something about, um, I do think there's sort of a unique package from my prior experience that I'm still unpacking and still feeling through. And I guess there, you know, it's sort of interesting for me to say that at this, again, I'm going to, I'm going to like talk about my age a little bit again, like in, in the place where I am with my, in my career, like, kind of starting as a curator older as an older person like it you know it's it's to my delight you know that I'm learning so many new things every every single day it's also kind of destabilizing sometimes to feel like I'm not mastering it all the time but this exhibition was a paradigm change for me and that I I let myself and I had to say it over and over. It became a mantra. This is an experiment. I don't know how, I don't have to know how this is going to turn out. And, you know, I, I honestly think that's, that's a more honest way to go about collaboration anyway. So if I, you know, I'm serious about honoring that. So, um, I, yeah, I hope that sort of puts that aspect, um, in perspective too, um, but it was a little bit of a high wire act, you know, and, and the staff wasn't all comfortable with not, with me not knowing <laughs> everything that was going to happen. Um, and that, that's totally legit, you know, um, but RF was very comfortable with that. And so I felt very supported by the person who is my supervisor, um, and really welcomed everything we did with all of you and the other collaborators um, in this round of Hindsight Insight. I feel like you kind of answered this with that question, but um, we're wondering, based on our experience working with you, what is your relationship to the artists that you work with and what do artists you work with bring to the curation process? Yeah. Well, not as much as I'd like to, you know, I feel like this exhibition is the, the chance I've really had to launch that. Um, I do think that with acquisitions, I like to take an, a, a very collaborative approach with artists. Like I want to hear what they want us to have and why, um, but that isn't something everybody wants to do or can do or will do. Um, but I always try that route first in the exhibition process, uh, the show that I did right as the pandemic burst into our lives, um, indelible ink, uh, native women printmaking and collaboration. That exhibition was also a bit of a breakthrough breakthrough for me. Um, focusing on, on women, focusing on, uh, native women focusing on a medium I know very well and a approach collaboration I know very well um, but I started at that point decentering my own voice and using interviews as a way to get the artist's voice on the wall 
Um, and when it is my voice, I signed my text, you know, which is something like used to happen at MoMA in the 60s. Um, and I don't know about the history of other museums with curatorial text being sort of signed by the curator, but I got interested in it again. You know, it's like I want it to be very clear who is who's speaking, you know, and I want to own up to what I'm saying. And um, that exhibition was also important because Diani Whitehawk, um, an incredible artist um, whose work was in the show, advised me a lot on the curatorial direction. And uh, so I acknowledged Diani in the text. Um, so it it was a I'd had I'd done other exhibitions where I wanted parts of the curatorial process to be um, transparent, but this was kind of a different level and using interviews um, as wall text became um, a mechanism that I, or a, a strategy that I've built on. Um, and I, I am going to continue to build on. With your art history degree, the, the PhD in art history, and your mentioning of interviews um, in the curatorial process and how you, how you put the, um, the exhibit together for the printmaking show, how do you see or can you share any sort of insight about how interviews, some people might call them oral histories, how those operate within an art historical context? Well, one of the ways I got through writing a dissertation was to um, interview all the artists that, of this exhibition that I was um, using as my single case study for my uh, dissertation. And um, I was I was ready to quit. Actually, I was I was really really struggling. Again, just not understanding what I was doing with this in this role, what I had to say, how I could write in a way that like performed art history in the way that we're sort of taught to understand it. And I went to my advisor, and I she picked up on it. I didn't even have to say anything. She's like you're not quitting. And I think you should, I think you should go talk to these people, you know, go talk to artists. That's what you like to do. Go talk to them. <laughs> and, um, and, and her name's Britt Salveson and she was wonderful and still is a big supporter and a mentor. Um, and it, she was so right. So it started for me, you know, in, um, the dissertation uh, research phase and uh, and I ended up publishing these interviews in my dissertation which half my committee really did not approve of didn't like thought it was a cop-out thought it was primary research that should you know lead to other kind of writing and um, I had enough support um, from half of my committee to push that through and I think it's totally legit now, you know, when I, when I was in research methods, you know, interviews were just much maligned, you know, and for good reason, you know, they're, they are very subjective to one person's opinion, um, the, the failures of memory, um, the biases of the interviewer, and on and on and on, power structures of the interviewer, interviewee. Um, so, but what I, what I found so useful about them is that they made it come alive, you know, it put language to a period, a, a, a previous period, a historical period, um, and really put me there in a way that the archives didn't, although what I think what, what really worked for me and I tried to really utilize was like to put together other kinds of primary research like archive archival research and other people's careful scholarship in dialogue with the inner with the interviews right and sorry for that pun uh, but uh, like in a fact-checking kind of way in a like holistic like if we look at this all together we might have we might start to see a picture of what things were really like so, um, I think, you know, it, as one sort of element of, of a dissertation, 
it it made sense and and I ended up you know um doing kind of a heavy like footnoting situation to my interviews which was a requirement of the committee so that they felt like I did enough work um, but it was also useful that I it was basically all my research that I needed to do to actually conduct the interview so it was a it was a kind of a transparency thing which I liked um, I also like the idea of publishing interviews in a dissertation that can, those interviews can become someone else's research. And so in the collaborative sharing sort of aspects of my personality, I think that really suited me. So hugely important. As, as, it's not as surprising to me, you know, with a little bit of reflection that that could also be a, a, a way to make exhibitions happen in conversation with artists and even if the artist is not living I seek out interviews and journals and uh, the artist's own writing as evidence of their thought process first and it's not only but it's always it's always first I love what you said about your mentor saying like just talk to people, that's what you like to do. Because it reminds me of when we first started the class that this project kind of came out of Marcella's um, Visual Sovereignty in the Archive class. And it's a mix of studio artists and art historians, or I guess it's a mix of MFA students and art history, um, PhDs and MAs. Um, And also there was an American Studies student and Marcella was really encouraged and kind of like pointed out that we don't cross and communicate enough. And I feel like that class was really um, generative for like bringing the conversations together. So yeah, I think that that in practice is something that I'm learning a lot from and I'm excited to do. And it was interesting what you were saying, Mary, about like where there's room to grow in the field of art history and some of the challenges that you've faced or maybe like pressure to do something a certain way and kind of feeling like there's room for growth for in new ways and Marina I was curious like what are you some of your goals or like your envision for how you will go about or you're going about working in that field well, truthfully, I think I'm still figuring it out. But I think this conversation for me is very productive in hearing about your experiences, Mary. Because it's also my first time working very closely with like MFA students and seeing how artists think. Um, and truthfully, I didn't even know what a curator really did until mm-hmm. I became part of this project, right? So even hearing about your research strategies and you know your methods, I think is, is really important for really all of us to hear, especially when we go into the museum and we engage with with these exhibitions, um, especially because we don't see the research process of it. Um, And I think that's something that's, you know, I'm sitting with right now. And I I just, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's good for me to see, you know, folks here at UNM that are doing amazing work, such as yourself within the arts, um, but also engaging, you know, the local communities and the students of Albuquerque, not just here at UNM. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm glad it's helpful, and I am serious about being available to either one of you to talk more about any of that. I think, I think there can be a perception that that curators stop sort of being art historians, and for me, it doesn't stop. Um, my. Uh, I insist on research, you know, in every show that I do, and I don't always have the time to do it the do it in depth the way that I know it can happen, and and in some ways probably should, um, because I, I'm literally creating something. I I, I don't have any downtime, you know, um, which is a good exercise and also really. I find difficult and also like it, it puts pressure on on the process that I 
sometimes wish wasn't there, but it makes, it gets me to produce stuff. Right. And it gets me a little bit out of my head, but the point is that, um, the, re, you know, research methods, you know, carries over into curatorial work and, um, being, um, responsible for content is something I take really seriously. You know, it, it has to be right. It has to be, um, accurate and honest or I don't want it on the walls you know so because I think I think there's an assumption that museums are going to do all that and um it's a it's it's part of my ethic you know and my sort of moral compass to make sure that that's right so I have to satisfy myself even if it like you know keeps me keeps me from sleeping at night sometimes or you know uh, pushes my deadlines out in which my colleagues don't always love, you know, but I just can't do it any other way. <laughs> and, uh, I would also stand by it, you know, like maybe I shouldn't try to do it any other, any other way. If I could do it a little bit faster, sometimes it would help people out around here. But, um, yeah. I will also say that these past couple of weeks, it's been really cool to see you. You know, just out in the community, I've seen you a couple of times, like at Artist Talks and at the film festival here. And I guess it was just like, I was telling Alan, I'm like, dude, like Mary's so cool. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think also we have, you know, this idea that the creators or like museum folks are just at the museum, you know, but actively engaging in the community like that, you know, I think is really cool for us to see as well. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Well, it feeds me too. You know, and I want to also, like, I want to know who the artists and scholars in my community are, what they're experiencing. I want to experience it with you. I want to reflect on it. I want it to somehow show up in the galleries. Um, and if I'm not out there doing it, then I, I that doesn't happen, right? So um, I'm also really interested in this um, kind of hyper-local sort of idea that, um, are the artists and scholars on campus are not only our art, our, our audience, you know, our most immediate audience and the one that we sort of put first, um, as an institution, but also like our community of makers, you know, and, and, um, I love this show in part because it highlights our, our community, our very hyper-local community of, of makers. And I think so, I see some mu museums starting to hire curators that, um, that are, are, are very focused on local communities. And, um, so it's something I'm thinking about and it's something that just, you know, in my gut just feels good. So, you know, I'm really excited. We've got the next, you know, year and a half to keep pursuing this endeavor and seeing how it plays out. I will say that, you know, the four of you, uh, Marcella, Anna, Marina, and, and Frank, um, have set the bar really high. You know, you, you've given so much of your time and energy and um, scholarship and careful thinking and um, to this exhibition that I, I'm kind of overwhelmed, honestly, you know, and uh, you set the bar high for other folks. And... Uh, I don't know. I'm going to have a hard time letting you go. I have a question that people have been asking me that I would ask all three of you. And I, I don't say people, meaning like so many people, but it's just like a few people um, about the color choice in the gallery, the ideas behind the color choice within the exhibition space. I mean, I was a little surprised at first, <laughs> but I think it definitely grew on me. Um, and I know that we have, you know, I've been in classes and some of Marcella's classes when we've had students talk about the white walls, right? And how that could be demeaning um, and just extractive. It has that kind of like feeling of, you know, not feeling necessarily welcomed. Um, so yeah, I think the colors definitely grew on me. I love the color. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um... Yeah, I think it's new and exciting and it changes the energy of a space in a way that feels exciting and like I want to spend more time in there and I enjoy I always like the experience of experiencing 
like what it feels like to look at art and move through a space in the art that I make and the art that I see. So I appreciated that it was kind of leading you in different ways and having like a, a slightly different experience based on color. Um, yeah, and then I think the t- so that Marcella mentioned the text that we included, the questions. Um, and I love that those ended up being this like bright magenta color because they really stand out and are kind of like bigger than we had been seeing them written in class or like said out loud so seeing it like huge on the wall and having it make connection to the wall across from it um yeah that was exciting to see and then on my piece thank you mary for letting me choose the color (laughs) of the wall and we were it was a fun experience like so mary pulled this was it a pantone book of different Oh, paint paint swatches from uh, Dunn Edwards is what we use. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there was this like folder of all of these colors and like endless possibilities. And then we looked at Betty Hahn's work to try to find similar colors since I was responding to Betty's work for the piece that I included in the show. So I wanted it to be like visually connected in that way, even though her work was on a white wall and then mine was on a color that was included in the work yeah I think like yeah it seems like there was a lot of thought put into the color in the show and I enjoyed the experience great well that's great to hear um I think it could take a bit for me to unpack this because it was a lot you know and and I'm actually my own feelings are reflected in in your reflections like Marina it took me a while you know to warm up to it and I was well, I did lose sleep over those colors. Um, you know, it was it was a lot. I, I think uh, Marcel and I saw each other a few times while those colors were going up, and I was <laughs> I was panicking a little. Like, how, is this going to work? Um, I love too, Anna, that we had that time together where you and I could um, select that co- color kind of quietly and carefully, and. Um, I took you through the process that I often go through, which is to look very closely at the work and look at, at at sort of what the meaning of the color could be in relationship to the work. You know, museum work is all about creating contexts, plural, right? Through the, um, what color the walls are to, you know, what sits next to it, to the way it's lit and on and on and on, which I find endlessly fascinating. But the fact that you and I were in the museum together and, you know, we could go into, you know, the prep space and look at Betty's pieces that were in the process of being framed, like that, that, that kind of way I moved through the space as I create an exhibition, like it was very pleasing to me to have you along with me for that and that you could experience that, that I could also, like we could help each other, um, that you had the opportunity to just kind of see what it's like to function in a museum space. So all of that was incredibly rich. And that's just one example, you know, and, and, and actually quite a, I mean, you were making those decisions. So like I was, I was probably along for the ride a little bit more than, you know, every, every other color that got chosen for this exhibition, including white. So the color choices kind of more in general, um, I've been flirting with color, you know, in the last couple of shows, I did a show uh, about Raymond Johnson, um, and I painted one the long wall of the Coke Gallery, this kind of intense, deep pink that reminds me of the light on the Sandias at the Golden Hour, which I have to think Johnson experienced. And so I was looking, starting to look at the content of color and how I could maybe say something about that in relationship to the artist's work with that show and people loved the colors in that show so much um, that I was really taken aback and when I was at Phoenix Art Museum I used to get very critical about the color decisions that um, our exhibition designer made and you know very sort of like he had 25 years of experience and was a very good designer but I for some reason thought it was my job to have opinions about everything so anyway I was always picking it apart like you know like is that really serving the work it's like 
no, like that matches the painting. That is awful. Like I will never do that, you know? And so, um, I've had to kind of eat those words as I sort of, um, watched how people responded to color in the galleries. And so this show, I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to do color, but I don't know what. And I asked, um, Devin, uh, Geraci, our, um, at that time she was, um, overseeing the frontline staff and marketing and half of the other museum functions. <laughs> and she's like, well, I just think anything bright would be great. And I'm like, okay, well, that is not happening because I can't do bright, you know, like <laughs> still sort of fighting my own sort of opinions about color and, and stuff. And then I'm like, well, yeah, maybe, you know, like, and then I brought it to our graphic designer, Susan um, Hyde Holmes, who's amazing. Also 25, 30 years of experience in the um, uh, New Mexico museum system. And uh, she's like, well, I'm like, well, Susan, here are my thing. Here's my very rough thoughts. Devin wants some, whatever's colorful and I don't know what I want, but here's all the art I'm thinking about putting up. And she's like, okay, well, how about this? How about these five things? I'm like thinking I was going to pick one or two. And then I'm like, I'm just going to pick, I'm just going to go with all of them. You know, like suddenly I was just all in and it became this really interesting well, pa sometimes panic-inducing, but really interesting sort of formal, um, formal and conceptual, actually, um, exercise for me. And I sweated. I sweated it, you know, like I, I really did. Like I was in the vaults with all these, you know, paint chips and like trying to make like, you know, is, is the, um, like, is this painting going to look right on this color? Um, but and then when I, and I made all these choices and had to like decide where the color was placed and then got the work in the space and was like, oh God, like that is awful. That cannot be. And so had to like shuffle the deck again and like, you know, move things around. But, um, oh my God, it's satisfying what works, you know, like, and what, and what works for me, you know, I realize it's very subjective. Um, one of the things I do f feel like on reflection works for the kind of broader project of this exhibition and and really what you all sort of brought to it with those very um succinct gripping hard-hitting questions um is that the palette has a lightness to it um the palette has some whimsy to it and perhaps in contrast to to the um, really deep questioning that you bring to it um, and that I hope I bring to it as well. But there is there something a little bit, um, I think, like, like luring you in and so that you'll stay long enough to sit with it. And I hope it works that way. Um, and then I, I do agree with Anna that there are pockets where I felt very deliberately like the Ann Noggle and Jess T. Dugan section, like I wanted to take the mood and the sort of like the frequency down, you know, and just make it very intimate and quiet. And it's kind of amazing that you can do that with a color that, that has that much punch. I love what you picked up on or just said about the questions um, kind of being in contrast to the or in communication in a way. I don't know if it's in contrast, but the way that you put that was really interesting. And I think that can be really powerful. So thanks for putting for bringing that up. Sure. Yeah, I, I actually, I'm glad you, you brought the, that up again, the text. And earlier you talked about the size of the text. And I had played with that with the Anila Aga exhibition just you know no basically an intro text that was at the very front of the gallery and then just the titles in you know two inch high cut vinyl lettering and that was it you know in the in the space but there was something about scaling up the size of the text and making it integrate into the the space of the gallery um I think is important and I think it's I wanted it to feel like your questions were as important as the artwork basically all this engagement we're talking about to me 
is as important as any single artwork that's on the walls. They're really just a, a vehicle or a mechanism for engaging you, you know, and that is a paradigm shift for me. You know, I was always really concerned about getting the right piece, putting it in the context to have it say what I thought it needed to say and letting go of the like kind of death grip on the selection of the artwork. That was huge for me and so rewarding, you know? Um, so the fact that your, your text is that high or that prominent through its color, um, not only I think respects, you know, the importance of what you're saying, but respects the effort and the collective knowledge of the four of you that it took to craft those questions as something as important as, as any of the artwork there. I love to hear you say that because this is something we were thinking about exactly how you just explained it was how do we, we're thinking about labor, different forms of labor, but also the unseen. And you even mentioned the word frequency and really thinking about art and its histories and space um, more than just a visual engagement and an, and a knowledge of historical reference, but also through things like sound and frequency and affect with an A, mm -hmm. um, how we feel through spaces and how we make other relationships and work visible when they exist in this sort of invisible realms. Aside from the color, did you have any hesitations or concerns about any of the works in the space? Like working in a with the permanent collection, I know that was one of the kind of like requirements for this show. And what is it like to curate from the permanent collection? Well, I think any project of um, exhibiting a permanent collection, especially a collection that was formed in the 60s with certain ideas about um, Western art being the most important thing that you can show students, um, this, this, the, my predecessors did an amazing job of collecting. We have a giant collection. It's over 30,000 objects. It's the largest collection in the state. So first of all, it still overwhelms me. Um, I still struggle to just get my arms around it and know what's in there. And then there are a lot of problematic artworks in the collection that I am still struggling to find a new kind of way to present them. And, um, I think for example, you know, like the Paul Strand photograph of the young girl, um, in Mexico that ended up kind of opposite Manuel Alvarez Bravo. And with your, your quote about the colonial gaze, um, in between, like as soon as that fell into that configuration, I relaxed because, um, because I don't want to put that piece up without some explanation of how problematic it is. And you all help me do it. You know, like you did that. You guys did that labor for me, you know, and I'm good. I'm thinking about this next phase when you're not there doing that. Like I, I need to, I need to do that lift, you know, on the next, the next go around. But there are all kinds of photography and other artworks in the collection as there are in every American institution. And I'm not, that's not a cop out. It's just like, it's just overwhelming to think about it, you know, how pervasive it is. Um, there are things that have to be reckoned with and, and, and decide whether you even show it at all. If it's just too, too sort of beyond, um, contextualization, you know, if it's just too triggering, too harmful to, to, too difficult and and just you know one of the things that's so great about your quotes being so big is you can't avoid them you know like um it, it, I struggle all the time with putting up works un, undefended or even defended if you will um through the wall labels because people don't read them you know so they putting the act of putting something problematic on the wall is um a very delicate and really important thing to get right. Um, so there are all kinds of, I mean, like countless ways 
you know, that can go um, sideways or in an unproductive way um, with our collection. I will say um, that I'm incredibly proud that, you know, while our collection is only about 25, 27, 28% women, um, there's more than half of this exhibition um, is uh, works made by women or non-binary artists. And that's the that's the balance I'm, I'm looking to achieve every time now. And we'll see how I can, you know, how I, and if I can do that with the givens that I have with the make makeup of the collection that is, you know, sitting in those vaults waiting for me to put them in the gallery. So, um, but that felt like a win. And also the diversity of, I mean, there's maybe four or five, works by native artists in the show and Latin American artists and African American artists. And so I feel good about the kind of makeup of the diversity, but it's, um, it doesn't reflect the sort of general makeup of the collection. So we'll see how that plays out over time with these different iterations of this show. Thank you. Thank you so much for all of this, for this great conversation, for having me um, on your podcast and um, for working so closely in, in such rewarding ways with me. Thank you so, so, so. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Mary Statzer. Check out this episode's show notes for links to references and resources mentioned in our conversation. This episode is part of a series. Subscribe to the Collective Constructs podcast for all of the episodes.